Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Good day to you, listener. Thank you for joining us for what is episode 12 of the Digital Bulletin podcast. Us being me, Ben Mouncer, and my esteemed panel made up of Digital Bulletin content director, James Henderson. Good morning. And CEO, Romley Broad. Hello. Hello. How are we doing, chaps? James, how, how are you? A little bit under the weather. I caught a, uh, a bit of a nasty cold off my... 13 month old daughter so but you know plowing on finally are you fun. sure yeah i'm sure it's not the other thing that's the thing the remote even if you've got kids the remote possibility of even a slight sniffle suddenly becomes a kind of plague doesn't it these days and uh yeah For you maybe i'm quite relaxed about well, it oh all right yeah okay <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me. I have no, to check. No panic buttons being pressed in the Henderson household just yet. Certainly not. Rom, how are you? It's been quite busy for us as a company recently, isn't it? Maybe maybe without giving too much away, you want to you know sort of shed a bit of light on what's coming up <laughs> for us. We yeah, I mean just we're we're growing. Obviously, new people are joining the team all the time as well. So look forward to talking about that. We've got a number of we're be, we're beginning to travel again with the baby steps, as it were. Um, uh, lots of interesting projects with lots of interesting companies coming up. Big, big, big uh, companies, very interesting people doing very big things at those companies. And it's going to be fascinating to uh, to dig in on what they're getting up to, particularly, you know, at the moment. Everything's more interesting at the moment, especially when you're talking about topics of transformation and uh, change and change management um, involving uh, mostly thousands, tens of thousands of people often. Um, how do you do that? It's hard enough in normal times, but but right now it's interesting. And um, yeah, that's going to keep us really busy over the next few weeks. Yeah, definitely. Transformation is a very real topic right now, that's for sure. Now, listener, we have a jam-packed podcast for you to enjoy. James, Rom, and myself will be discussing NVIDIA's deal to buy ARM. We're going to explore our case study on Deutsche Telekom, and we're also going to hear from Ainsley Braun, who sits on the Silicon Valley Leadership Group a little bit later on. But first, here's some news. Following the relative quiet of August and the summer holiday season, September has been busy. We have, of course, seen TikTok being courted by Microsoft, no deal, and then Oracle and Walmart, deal, well, maybe. We'll see how that one turns out. In the world of 5G, Samsung surprised some by managing to win a $6.6 billion supplier contract with Verizon over in the United States. Expect to see similar partnerships emerge before 2020 is out, that's for sure. Another big story was Klarna raising $650 million in fresh funding, making it the highest valued private fintech company in Europe. We certainly haven't seen a shortage of investment in tech in recent months. Elsewhere, Pure Storage paid $370 million for Kubernetes specialist Portworks. Ericsson, $1.1 billion for CradlePoint. And Salesforce has promised to employ 12,000 people in the next year. That's despite laying off 1,000 staff only in August. Definitely an interesting one, that one. As you now know, listener, you can get the original reporting on these stories and a bunch more over on digitalbulletin.com. But now we are going to turn our attention to NVIDIA, ARM, and a $40 billion 
acquisition. Now, many acquisitions happen in our world. Most pass without much controversy or even many headlines. But this one is a bit different. James, I'm going to come to you here. Maybe you can explain to our listeners why, just why this deal is potentially so seismic for the technology industry. Uh, I mean, there's a couple of angles around it. I mean, firstly, we should say that Arm is... uh, is a very substantial company and works with other very substantial companies. And the reason for that is that it's um, it's chip architecture. So it doesn't make chips, but what it does is develop software for chip architectures, which, and, it, and that software is used by some of the biggest companies in the world, like Apple, Broadcom, Qualcomm, you know, think of the, the you know, the, the real big businesses. Um so it's substantial just just for that reason alone. You know, it's it's a company that that, that its software is relied on by some of the biggest organisations in in technology. Um, so that that that's the first reason, really. Um, I don't know whether you want me to sort of jump into, um, you know, the some of the controversy already, or 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 or, or explain, you know, sort of, you know, why. Why, you know, why we're speaking about it as a, as a controversial subject, yeah? Well, yeah, I mean, look, the controversy, there is a lot of controversy around it, and it, it's kind of centred, a lot of it is around ARM's unique position, isn't it? Because as you've said there, right. it's it's kind of neutral. Um, yes, it's it, it's neutrality is something that it's always, you know, flown the flag for. It, you yeah. know, it, it doesn't it doesn't mind who, who it works with and, and who its software is, um, is leveraged by. Um, and the, and that that has sort of stood the, the test. It was a, it was acquired by SoftBank Group in 2016 for 31, I believe it's 31 billion. So obviously this is a, I don't know, maybe 31 or 32 billion. I, I would have to double a lot, check. A lot of money either way. It was a lot. It was a lot of money. So um, SoftBank has done it for a, a tidy profit. But what what you would have to say with SoftBank is that. You know, it's not an NVIDIA, whereas, you know, technology is absolutely core to what it does and it doesn't necessarily leverage ARM's products. The, the neutrality was was something that was upheld perfectly and, you know, it was it was understood by all that, that ARM could continue to be neutral working under the SoftBank group. NVIDIA is slightly different, of course, because NVIDIA is a company that um, that uses its the ARM's um, software architecture. Um, and obviously, there are worries from other other companies that, you know, despite insisting that it won't, that actually Nvidia will get sort of first dibs and first looks at this <laughs> at what's coming out of um, at what's coming out of Arms R and D base in in the UK. Yeah. So that that is one of the reasons why it's uh, it's made so many headlines. I think that the the former or, or not the former the, the co-founder of arm who is no longer there i think herman hauser his name is i said this is a potentially disastrous deal so, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, maybe well you know it's, it's certainly an opinion um i'm sure i'm sure he's feeling i'm sure he's feeling quite protective but yeah it's, it's really interesting what arm does it but it basically works doesn't it incredibly closely with a bunch of technology companies to build mm. bespoke kind of solutions for those people surely rom that that can't continue can it if if they if they are eventually bought by nvidia surely that can't continue well nvidia have said it will they you know they've guaranteed oh yeah we'll definitely maintain its uh, independence um but obviously that's not true <laughs> i mean obviously it's not true because um those nvidia make chips broad and and not the digital bulletin podcast i think it's, it's well i mean it's 
it's literally not true in that it it's not independent anymore. And so there's a reason NVIDIA have, have decided to go and buy ARM, and that's because they want to control the market more. <laughs> I mean, it makes very good business sense for them, right? The truth is they've made lots of assurances as far as I understand it. They've said, look, we're not going to move it out of the UK. It's going to stay where it is. The There's a lot of people there working in Cambridgeshire in, in the UK who, uh, um, you know, the, that's where the headquarters are. NVIDIA have said, yeah, we're not going to move that. In fact, we'll invest in it, all, all of that sort of stuff. In, in truth, in the long term, um, unless those commitments are legally binding, which I think they were, uh, SoftBank made legally binding commitments to keep things in the UK, didn't they? I think uh, when they bought it, I don't think Nvidia has made those kind of assurances themselves. I might be wrong. Um, inevitably, uh, in the long term, this will become an, a, a part of Nvidia, obviously, and and that will go wherever in the world it makes sense for them to go. Is that a good or a bad thing? I, you know. I, I don't know. I don't well, know. I would, it's... James, you're ready to jump in there. But yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things. Uh, Jensen Huang, I think, the CEO of NVIDIA, said he would be prepared to make some legally binding guarantees on right. jobs and investments. Um, and I actually think he probably will have to do that for it to be um, sort of rubber stamped, especially here in the UK. I know that our members of parliament are going to be debating this in the House of Commons at some point. To talk about whether it's in the national interest. I, I wrote in um, our newsletter last week that obviously we're we are a company that looks at technology from a, a global standpoint, but of course we are a UK-based company, so you know we do take a, a sort of you know we we are very interested in what's going on in the UK, and by any by by any means, ARM is a is the sort of jewel in the crown of, of UK technology, and to to see it being sort of kicked around like some political football has been I, I find it quite worrying and i think is it if rom says is it a good thing or a bad thing i think it's for me i don't i certainly think it is a bad thing i i think just to qualify that comment i think the when i say i'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing is that it's not been a uk company for a while um the the it's important to the uk though because it's 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 here and so um around arm has grown particularly in the cambridge area a an ecosystem of talent um, coming out of places like Cambridge University, but ultimately being able to find uh, not just employment in that area, but um, uh, employment at the very top of the chain in terms of you know what you might be able to to do uh, in a technology career. It's important for this country to retain that kind of uh, that kind of thing. As long as long as that happens, um, then I don't see any particular worry in, in that sense. I think for the industry as a whole, it's more of a concern because suddenly you've got um, a player in NVIDIA that's got a bit of a stranglehold on uh, on, on chip designs. And you, and you wonder whether that uh, over time, the lack of independence there is going to affect, um, you know, the, the competitive momentum, I suppose, of the industry as a whole but frankly who who knows and that's why i'm quite ambivalent about it it's more personal for me though actually i mean i'm a bit older than you guys but i remember you know when arm first started out um um i remember using the archimedes computers that proliferated in uk schools that were based on the uh risk architecture that are uh, that um that arm developed and that was kind of the beginning of their story and we ourselves are located quite close to arm um, I've certainly attended events and talks where the founders of Armour are 
wandering around and, and meeting people. So it's quite um, close to us almost. Um, in the end, though, um, I'm not sure how big a, an effect this will have um, on the industry as a whole. Geopolitically, it might be more interesting, though, as you say. Yeah, that's um, that's the next question, James, really, isn't it? As always, there is well, a <laughs> geopolitical tension kind of emerging from this story between, you guessed it, um, China and the US. <laughs> um, do you want to talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I bet that uh, I bet Boris Johnson and the uh, Conservative Party are delighted to be stuck in the middle of this, it seems, again. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, obviously, you, you know, um, under the auspices of, a, of SoftBank is now very, very possibly going to be then controlled by an American company. And, and the, there are many Chinese companies that that use arm um, software and obviously the worry from china is um that they will be frozen out of that that they won't be able to 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 use um to use this anymore and but the thing is that i think the china state administration for market regulation that snappy known watchdog <laughs> is one of the many regulators that are going to have to sign this deal off so again the the, the powers that be at um at nvidia are gonna again i think they're gonna have to make some some pretty cast iron promises to, to get that sort of way through, but it, it very much does feel like a a bit of a land grab by an, an American company. But what I think will 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 you will see now is is Beijing very much sort of looking to invest in its own domestic chip sector and being able to to take things in house. I think that that will that will that is we know that is happening anyway. But I think this is just going to accelerate that. And one one final point on this, gents, is what this means for NVIDIA. Obviously a huge company, but one that has perhaps been on kind of the fringes of the Silicon Valley elite. But where, where do you think this kind of thrusts them into the future with this acquisition, James? Because, um, yeah, I mean, they said themselves that they, obviously this is very much PR talk, but creating the world's premier computing company for the age of AI. Um, what do you yeah. think it means for them? Yeah, I mean, it, obviously that that is... That's been written in a nice shiny room by a load of by a PR team paid fortunes, of course. But there is there there there, there is some truth to that. If if it, indeed it's it is um, it's waved through, if they are able to 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 get this sorted out, then more and not just more and more companies, but more and more of our equipment. If we think about IoT and the Internet of Things, you know everything around us is going to have elements of AI within it, and therefore needs you know, software architecture in the chips that that sort of power that AI. So it it's absolutely true um that that if if they're able to to bring that sort of ARM architecture under the sort of NVIDIA umbrella, it's gonna make them a, a far more well rounded company. As you said they they've maybe been on the fringes of, of Silicon Valley previously, but this this very much will bring them from the fringes in right into the center, you'd have to say. Yeah, definitely. Right, we're going to leave this topic here, listener, but be sure of it. We'll be on top of any key updates in the NVIDIA ARM story. Next up, we're going to take you inside IT at Europe's biggest telco. Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and at Digi underscore Bulletin on Twitter. Earlier this month, we hit the go button on our case study with Deutsche Telekom. Our focus was on Deutsche Telekom IT and the huge amount of work it has undertaken in the last three years to shed its technological and cultural baggage and bring about a transformation in how it delivers its products and services. 
Romilly had the great pleasure of interviewing four of Deutsche Telekom IT's senior leaders about IT at Motion, the organization's program to drive technology and IT innovation with a refreshed approach based on speed and collaboration. Before Rom shares more of the tremendous insights offered up by Deutsche Telekom as part of this project, here is Katja Drexler, SVP IT Strategy and Transformation, CIO Office, to tell us the problems the company was trying to solve. This was the, the first question we had, why we need to move. Um, so first of all, Deutsche Telekom is no longer only competing with other network providers. So we also competed with uh, Amazon, Google and co for customer attention. And so new technology companies dramatically shifting the benchmark in terms of development speed, customer experience and quality. And that's the reason um, so between ideas and market launches lies weeks or a few months and customer takes care of their regress with three clicks yeah. and maintenance windows are for me a historical thing. So, so in all dimensions, uh, we needed a quantum leap. So more and more is done by software and software increasingly shaping the customer experience. Agility, a popular ambition for companies in any industry right now and something Deutsche Telekom IT was desperate to introduce into its way of working. Rom, first of all, can you give us a bit of background on the scale and ambition of this program? Yes, I mean, it, it is massive. It started about three years ago um, um, and has obviously had to roll its way through um, the disruptions of the last six months or so. It's it's ongoing as any transformation program always is. Um, but Deutsche Telekom is one of the world's largest telecoms companies. It's um, certainly the biggest one in Europe. Um, and almost now, since um, its merger with Sprint, it's uh, certainly second place in the US and not far off being first. Um, there are 10,000 people working in its IT organization. And um, essentially, three years ago, um, their new CIO, Peter Leukert, joined and realized that they were still very much embedded into a waterfall kind of way of working. Um, it was you know, basically a similar way of working that, uh, that they'd enjoyed, I suppose, for the last 20 years or something. Um, lots and lots of embedded legacy in terms of the culture, how people worked, not much diversity going on, I think, by all accounts. Um, and it was slow. The main problem is it it was slow. So they were trying to keep up with the likes, as Katya was saying, they were with the likes of Google, Amazon, etc. People who are much much quicker in uh, in bringing new IT based products to market. Um, and they were very slow. So they said, right, we need to we need to figure out how to change all of this. And the most important and fundamental part of that change was culture change. It was about you can't just say, right, well, we're going to stop doing waterfall and we'll start doing, um, you know, agile. And everyone's just going to turn around and go, sure, no problem. We'll start on <laughs> Monday. Um, it's not quite that easy. You have to kind of retrain everybody, um, especially if you don't want to go on um, achingly difficult recruitment drives and so on. Um, you need to take the people you've already got, all of whom have uh, huge amounts of talent and encourage them and train them and coach them and, and work on uh, new ways of working. And that is what they spent a lot of time 
talking to me about was how do they foster and encourage culture change and attitudinal change um and then on top of that of course there's huge amounts of technical work that's been going on yeah. particularly um regina shikantans who i spoke to who's the chief architect was uh was talking a lot about how they are changing their infrastructure and their architecture from a technical point of view to enable them to use modern tools move to the cloud um uh, and strip away that technical legacy that you know that 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 um, any company of that size actually kind of has to deal with, and the the sheer quantity of work that they've done over the last three years is is really Im- impressive, actually. Yeah, the the culture side of things, and as you said, Rom, that's really that's kind of really interesting stuff here. Um, we'll touch on in a minute. But what were the kind of technological kind of t- targets, ambitions? We, we know that before they started this work they they were kind of burdened by a lot of things and as you've said and it it would take them sometimes you know up to 18 months to launch a new a new product um they've brought that down quite dramatically haven't they yes so they're now achieving you know as little as three months so the way they've done that obviously is to adopt an agile development framework um that'll be familiar to a lot of people who are listening to this i should think um They've uh, built that around some things they call digital hubs, and there's a lot of those now within the organization led by the folks, uh, uh, for example, that we spoke to, um, who are self-reliant, self-responsible. They're given objectives and they run at them quickly. They fail fast. You know, all those keywords that we're used to thinking about in terms of in terms of agile, um, which is fundamentally different from how they used to work, which was extraordinarily hierarchical when you've got an organization that big. uh, you end up with people, um, experts, as they're called um, within Deutsche Telekom, but, you know, uh, highly skilled technicians who are doing the actual work, um, being uh, a long way away from the people who are making the decisions ultimately at the top of the train uh, chain um, and fundamentally afraid of making mistakes, of stepping outside of the processes that they're, that they're being instructed to follow. Um, uh, decisions would take a long time to make, but then, uh, everything else would take a long time as well from um, working through that process. So they've, they've ripped all of that up and changed everything. Um, none of that would work, of course, if they weren't figuring out how to talk to each other better. And uh, they were very clear about that. It's, you know, how can we, um, if we're going to be dynamic and, uh, and, and agile and fast moving, uh, we need to be way better at collaborating. And so a huge amount of effort, particularly led by um, uh, Katya and the people around her in, in that, part of the business Um, their fundamental job is to inform everybody and to coach everybody and to create the systems and the methods of engagement to foster uh, collaboration and uh, communication between people but not just IT people people from throughout the whole business so that people on the business side they might be in sales sales and marketing they might be senior management they might be customer services but they're all involved in the process as part yeah. of these digital hubs, um, and the net result of that is, is, uh, is you know, is well, it's it's easy to see. You know, they're now um, working way way quicker, while simultaneously decoupling all of their infrastructure and uh, retiring uh, things piece by piece ad- using this agile mechanism. James, we're going to come to you. Obviously, this this. Um... The sort of story here of moving to an agile methodology is a story we've told before, but it's fair to say, you know, thinking back, you know, to the case studies we've done on Digital Bulletin, 
over the last couple of years. This one with Deutsche Telekom really takes it up to another level, doesn't it? You were talking about Europe's biggest telecoms company um, and an IT organization that employs 10,000 people. This is kind of, you know, a, a case study plus, if anything, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it, it certainly is. We've we've worked with some fairly big companies, but to fundamentally change how a, a sort of team of ten thousand technologists and IT experts work yeah. across an organisation with with a footprint across Europe. Um, the story that that the the four guys at, at Deutsche Telekom have, have told with, with Rom, um, it's a pretty extraordinary one. And I think that what it shows is it. As you said, it's a case study plus, but it's still, it's, I think it shows that the fundamentals are still the same. That's about sort of empowering people better to take risks um, and be really innovative and to, you know, to to be comfortable to do that. And as Rob said, be comfortable to fail. And from we, we've done case studies on really small companies and right from, from those, you know, the companies of 100 people that we've worked to all the way to Deutsche Telekom, the, the message still seems to be the, the, the same these um these transformations are really everything's ingrained in the culture and when you when the culture changes to allow people to um to, to think differently and, and just free them up to really work um and, and not be scared to fail that seems to be a theme that sort of runs through all of them whether they're huge or smes you know i thought that was really interesting and really telling actually yeah now, IT at Motion, there, there were kind of five areas of change that um, Deutsche Telekom IT addressed, and culture was kind of the, one of them, and also the thread that kind of ran through all of them. Cultural change came in, in many different forms for Deutsche Telekom IT, but a big part of it was to empower its people to have influence as members of multifunctional teams, rather than have them rely on the previous hierarchical management practices, as Sabine Arbecker talks about in this next clip. For me, it was in the beginning really a movement, a slow movement in the beginning, but it was a movement talking to the people without hierarchy, talking direct to them, ask them for, the, for their opinion. In the beginning, they were really astonished when management asked normal experts for their opinion. They didn't believe that their opinion is really asked for. Rom, when I read this piece what one word the one theme that kind of kept coming to me was how they all talked about trust and building trust amongst employees it's quite unusual to and and, and it's quite unusual to, to sort of hear how candid they were about maybe a lack of trust between people before this yeah absolutely i mean we we do need to 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 thank these uh folks for being so honest with us because it was it was really interesting and trust um, is you, you could interpret what that means in a number of ways, but for Deutsche Telekom, it was if people don't trust um, other areas of the business because there's too many layers of hierarchy between them, and you know things get broken down. If if something isn't documented in incredible amounts of detail, then I can't trust it. I don't trust the person who's done that. Um, if they can't if if they can't trust uh, their their leaders to genuinely know what it is that's going on on the ground because they're too far removed from it um then you can't really encourage a culture change you can't really encourage people to work differently and so they they realized that the first element of technology change was people change and that was and they they did that through getting people in rooms sitting them down building new teams in person um 
all sorts of fleshy, very human stuff that was absolutely central to the core mission of technology change. And uh, I think a really important point to make as well is that um, we we spoke to four very senior uh, IT leaders and all but one of them have been at Deutsche Telekom for um, 20 years or almost 20 years. And so um, one of the things they all had to do, of course, during this process was to um, uh, internalize their own thoughts about this. You know, that they are that was a big challenge for them and all of the other leadership level people throughout the organization. How can they change their own ingrained uh, habits and practices in terms of management? Um, coached as they were within a command and control type structure um, to become what they call and are extremely serious about uh, servant leadership. And servant leadership is um, something that they are coaching themselves continuously on. And that is about them saying, look, we're not, I'm not going to be a command and control type person. I'm not going to set task lists and then judge people um, on those. Um, it's not about KPIs that are driven by task lists. It's about saying you're a self-reliant, self-responsible team. Nominally, I'm in charge of you, but my role here is to trust you guys to interpret the objective and deliver it. And then my job is to do whatever I possibly can to empower you as individuals to enable you to do that. Mm-hmm. And for each individual, that might be a different thing. It, for the you know for the super nerd in the corner, it might be making sure that they've got the Nvidia new Nvidia graphics card, right? <laughs> because that's what's going to keep them happy. But for someone else, it could be it could be something completely different. Their job is not to um, micromanage; it's to support. And it's kind of a the more you think about it, the more fundamental a kind of mind shift that is for the leadership yeah. level within the organization. And it's in it was really inspirational to hear them all talk about how they had embraced that challenge themselves and taking themselves out of their comfort zone um, before they asked all of the people that they managed to do the same thing. Yeah. And it's also inspirational to hear about the results as well. Obviously the reduction in, in you know, delivering products and services to three months is, is a, is a stat. It's a, it's a figure, but you know, the, these things have, have only happened because of this cultural change. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's all well and good kind of talking about these ideas in practice, but to actually see an example where, um, sorry, talk about them in theory, but then to see an example in practice where it's, ha- it's having a, a real impact across such a huge organization. Right. Hey, I, I think that just to add, sorry, I don't, don't want to interrupt. Just to add, there's, there's, I asked every all of them one question at the end, which was, so are people happy, happier now than they yeah. were three years ago? Three years ago and um the the answer it was obviously yes but it was a kind of qualified yes it's just well sometimes the fact that you're putting people out of their comfort zones especially if they've been there a long time um makes people unhappy for a while and that's something else you have to manage but ultimately um once you've gone through the process and it's taken three years and it's still going on um people do become happier because they feel more in control more empowered uh, uh and so on and that is, um, I think, crucial to what their next challenge is. Um, the current challenge, of course, is to get through, is to carry on doing this during a coronavirus. We wrote another article separately, actually, that you can find on the website about how they've managed to carry on doing this through the the, the disruption of, of the pandemic. And I think it's key to point out is that all of the people I spoke to, all four of them said, look, we probably couldn't have done this actually we probably couldn't have gone through this awful disruption 
had we not already spent two years changing the way people trust each other and work because now they can actually continue without too much disruption um over video conferences and things like that previously it would have been a real challenge because the disruption would have sliced through the hierarchy and everything would have ground to a halt um and I, you know all of that i think is just uh it's just really fascinating yeah um another important element that i want to touch on rom is another element of this story which is diversity and we, we know deutsche telecom over the last decade and more have made a lot of effort to introduce more diversity to their workforce and and their leadership teams and for them this was an opportunity to demonstrate the kind of impact four female leaders have had in the it team yeah P peter loiker himself um is on the record multiple times talking about diversity and, and why it's important, especially if what you're trying to do is change everything. Um, diverse groups of people that mirror much more closely actual society um, are way better at dealing with change as a community, as a group of people than homogenized lumps of, you know, uh, one side or another. So um, he, I think, is on the record as, as as pointing that out and it's been a key part of what the transformation has involved but as you say Deutsche Telekom have been working on this for, for the last 10 years um, very publicly they've had um, a very strong uh, drive uh, at board level to increase um, the the gender diversity certainly anyway in uh, in Deutsche Telekom over the last 10 years and the fact is we sat down with four senior IT leaders um, in one of the world's largest telecoms companies all of whom were women and I think that in, in of itself um, tells you what kind of progress Deutsche Telekom has made and why they are rightly considered a standard bearer for, for this particular topic. Yeah. Brilliant stuff, Ron. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we, we must move on now. But listener, if you'd like to read, watch or indeed listen to the Deutsche Telekom case study in full, you can over on digitalbulletin.com. Ron has done a really great job in it. I think it's some work that we're really proud of. So it'd be great if you could go over and, and have a read. Um, We'll be back after this. Power up your day with the Bulletin Brief, the latest news, insights and opinion delivered straight to your inbox. Our interview for this episode of the Digital Bulletin podcast is with Ainsley Braun. Braun is a director for application security specialist Synopsis, but her story goes far beyond that. She co-founded Tinfoil Security, which was acquired by Synopsis in January. She is also a member of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, a board member of the Women in Cybersecurity Council at the California Technology Council, and she holds five patents and two degrees from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Now, our interview was on the challenges faced by women in technology, but especially in cybersecurity. And I kicked things off by asking Ainsley what drives her to try and make a difference. I think that obviously as a woman in tech and a woman in cybersecurity where there aren't many women. Um, I've seen a lot of disadvantage uh, folks. Uh, I also see that there are a lot of people talking about it. Obviously, I am a type A outspoken personality. Um, <laughs> so I am always happy to talk on subjects that um, I either want to learn more about or I think can be improved. So I think the initial way that I 
forayed into uh, speaking about diversity or any of my extracurriculars has always been um, a drive for knowledge. Uh, so trying to understand what's going on, how other people feel. I don't necessarily feel how other women or disadvantaged folks do all the time. So I'd like to understand their perspective because understanding someone else's perspective is just the first step to growing in your career and where you want to be. Excellent. What kind of impacts do you think you can have? Because obviously these, these are big issues that can't be solved by one person. So what are you, what are you trying to achieve with the work that you do? Uh, I think that there is obviously the idea of one step at a time. Um, if you can make an effect on one person's life then or two people, then they can make an effect on another person and another two people, and it starts to cascade on itself. Uh, so yes, I might not be able to change the world completely, but uh, hopefully I can help someone along the way. Um, I do think that uh, more people getting involved creates more awareness of a problem. Um, whether it is a problem or not always stands to be debated, no matter what the issue you're dealing with is. But I do think that the more you start speaking about it, the more people become aware um, and the louder something becomes. And as it becomes louder, uh, then it usually starts to form some change, even if it's just at an individual company or two, it still makes a change. Yeah, excellent. So um, first of all, Ainsley, tell, tell us about your role on the Women in Cybersecurity Council at California Technology Council and kind of what, what that entails. Sure. So um, I'm a part of a whole bunch of groups um, trying to get more women into both tech and cyber. Uh, and it's really not even just women, um, but more minorities and people overall. Uh, there's definitely a shortage of manpower um, or woman power <laughs> in cybersecurity. Um, and so uh, part of what I do in many of the groups uh, really stems down to uh, reaching the K through 12 folks. Um, so any sort of kid who's interested in technology, um, making sure that there are more women um, and girls getting interested in technology and um, really looking at STEM as STEM. Um, you know, I, I personally don't like the idea of STEAM that all the schools in the U.S. are starting to push because adding the arts in really defeats the point of getting women into engineering and science and technology. Um, so when you start to add the arts and you're kind of just including everything else that existed other than history. Um, so uh, I wanna make sure that as we start to push these STEAM ideas and these STEM ideas that um, women are included in these decisions. And um, as a part of that, all these councils are trying to identify where can they help given their area of expertise and really where they gravitate and you know cdc is obviously california based but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only group that can make a difference here mm. we know these issues are partic particularly prevalent in in technology and, and cybersecurity, as you said candidly ainsley what are the challenges of being a woman in in kind of these male dominated worlds i feel very lucky that i haven't really faced as many challenges as other women um I think the biggest challenge is surrounding yourself with people who are going to support you. Um, so being savvy to the network that you're creating, as well as um, being very alert to the psychology going around uh, you, which is difficult to do. Um, you have to pay attention to facial reactions. You have to pay attention to uh, just in general, who gives what tasks to whom, how much trust you gain. Are you gaining trust? I think it's the challenge that you face in any industry with any sex or any ethnicity or any creed. But I do think that um, you have to be a little bit more aware as a woman in cybersecurity, for example, to make sure that you are surrounding yourself with people 
who are going to build you up and not, not tear you down. Um, so I'd say that's the biggest challenge I've faced is making sure that I'm continuously surrounding myself with employees and um, coworkers, colleagues, customers even, uh, who are going to build me up, support me, understand what I'm doing and that I'm capable of it and giving me that trust. Um, and I'd say that that is the first step in order to really facing any sort of challenge as a woman in this industry. Do you have any other advice that you can can give women who want to have a career in these industries, who want to excel in um, sectors like cybersecurity, maybe looking back on, on your own experiences again? Uh, I would say there are two pieces of advice that I would always give, which is um, advice I would give anyone, which is people are people. Um, you can interact with somebody who can be a CEO of a top, top company, but they're still human. And treating people as if they're human and as if they're normal really allows you to understand them a little bit better as a person. And they're usually more willing to talk to you if you're talking to them as if you know they shouldn't be treated above everyone else. Um, I also think more specifically for women that um, being a woman or a minority uh, is an absolute strength. Uh, oftentimes you will go into a conversation uh, people, if they have a bias, will obviously go in with that initial bias and you can surprise uh, anybody that you're interacting with. And I think the element of surprise is the strongest asset you have. If you are a woman in cybersecurity, for example, someone might not think you are technical. Someone might not think that you are able to answer specific questions. And if you're able to go in there, you understand your product, you understand your industry and you can answer these questions, you might surprise them and end up uh, a lot farther ahead than you would expect. Mm. Where do you think, Ainsley, we're at on this on this journey, especially in security? Obviously, we, 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 a lot of work is being done, but there's still a long way to go. What, what, what's your view on where we're, where we're at on, the, on this journey? I would say we're really still in the beginning stages. <laughs> um, I think that there are hundreds of years of women uh, not working, not uh, controlling things outside the house, um, not being able to have a very strong voice. So uh, I don't necessarily think that we're in as bad a position as some people might say, um, but I do think that we are not in an equal state yet. I think that um, even some benefits that companies are providing of saying, hey, you know, we're going to help you freeze your eggs drives me crazy because uh, they focus on freezing your eggs, but not all the other aspects of family life. Um, and I do think that um, employees, male or female, should be able to go and build the family lives that they want. But uh, we're really encouraging women, especially to delay motherhood, have fewer children. Um, and if you go off, you have a big family, you really need to stay at home. Um, or you, maybe you're not going to move up the ladder. And I think that that's one of the biggest issues we do have to tackle is you know, there is a work-life balance. People are starting to feel it with the work from home with COVID. And we're seeing more people, males included, starting to adjust to being at home with their kids. And I think this is going to help us way faster, um, this whole idea of the world not moving. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I still think that we're a ways away and, you know, hopefully more experiences like this will have a positive effect and a positive side. Yeah. Is it fair to say, though, that a lot of the issues are kind of rooted in areas that are not kind of in, in the enterprise, in businesses? So, you know, you're looking at education, you're looking at societal kind of issues as well, aren't you? Yes. 
I, I would say, it, it, as with any of the groups that we work with, uh, that I work with, um, it really does stem from early development. Um, so early stages, if you don't get through college, you're going to have a really hard time unless, you know, you're a hacker on the side for cybersecurity. But um, a lot of women will go through university, go through college, and they will focus on not necessarily the hard tech. Uh, and it's not it's not because they don't care about it or enjoy it. There are quite a few women who do really well in this industry. Uh, but if you are raised and encouraged from a young age, oh, okay, well, engineering or building with Legos or building a robot um, isn't something that your family even gravitates toward because it's not a stereotypical thing a woman would enjoy. Um, that in and of itself really defeats the point of trying to get more women in technology later on because we can't get more women in technology if they're not interested, if they don't want to do it, or if we've really set them up to fail from a family perspective anyway. Now, I'm really interested in your membership of the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. Um, I'm sure diversity is, is a topic, a subject often brought up as part of your sort of role there. Do you want to talk a bit about that and um, yeah, may, maybe about how, how often you, you, you discuss um, issues of, of, that we've spoken about today? Sure. So um, Silicon Valley Leadership Group is absolutely amazing. I love being a part of it. Um, I'm mostly a part of the tech council there. So we don't touch on diversity as often maybe as we should, but uh, we do hear quite a bit about it. Um, obviously, it is on the foremost, uh, it's on the front of all the big companies' minds. So how do we increase women in tech? How do we make sure we don't look bad? I think that's really a big piece to increasing diversity is just companies not wanting to look horrible in the news. <laughs> um, but uh, Silicon Valley Leadership Group, I think one of the strongest things that we've been trying to do um, is just education overall. So even education of our member companies on cybersecurity. Um, we do not care if you are male, female, you know, black, white, however you want to look at it. Uh, if you need education, um, we're going to hopefully put together forums and conferences where we can educate you on the topic of cybersecurity or physical security or any other technology. And I think that making sure that we are providing education overall, no matter who you are, is going to help more people get involved and really want to strive for that extra step um, where that they can actually see a future path into something new that they wouldn't have tried before. Ainsley, what, what would you say the benefits of a, of a more diverse organization? Because, you know, many people might say, you know, it's, it's all about just achieving diversity. And then, you know, that that's that kind of box tick to, to use a bad phrase. But there are there are benefits, aren't there? There are real benefits to a diverse kind of workforce. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as you were saying, the check in the box is um, a standard for some of these large companies, no matter what. You need to have a diverse workforce. You need to have women on your board uh, purely because externally other people will say, okay, well, Apple, you don't do this. I'm not going to buy an Apple product. So it can affect your bottom line. Um, but I do think that it goes way beyond that when you actually start to look at the mindsets of bringing different types of people in. There have been a whole bunch of studies of a diverse workforce allows different ideas to come in. You tend to have more innovation. Um, you tend to catch problems faster. Uh, you tend to have a lot more collaboration amongst your team and you end up with employees who respect a lot more. So if your employees have to learn to respect somebody who's very different from them, uh, you end up with an employee base that is uh, caring, typically a lot more aware of problems that customers might face. 
um, and a lot more human. And I think that human aspect is often overlooked in any industry. Um, people are just humans. They want to be treated as humans. And the more you go into that direction, the more you create diversity and understanding, um, the easier it is to sell your product and uh, really to support your customers overall. And is it fair to say that the new generation coming coming through will demand more from the companies they want to work for around these issues? So it, it kind of that they play a huge role in making making this kind of stuff happen, don't they? Uh, I think they do. I think it also depends on your country. Um, yeah. I, in the US, we are very politically correct right now. Whether that's good or bad, I haven't seen. Um, I do think that there will be uh, large detriments to the workforce over time if we continue this path, because I do think that there has to be an acceptance and willingness of mentorship, um, you know, whether that person accepts diversity or not, because we have to understand that there are generational gaps here. Uh, there are still people who, you know, will put a woman in a disadvantaged position, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have knowledge to share. Um, so I think that there are overarching changes we have to make as a society, um, acceptance on both sides, both the, you know, young kids coming through very politically correct, very open, um, and then the some folks in the older generation, uh, or even some folks on the younger generation, but it tends to be the older generation who um, might not be as open to mentoring in the same way. So we want to make sure that both sides are open to collaboration, learning, and um, you know I hope that if with that collaboration overall, it's not just the young kids coming through pushing this change. I think that we really need to start from the top and the historical knowledge and propagate through. Right, that is it for today, everybody. Before we go, I'd like to point you in the direction of digitalbulletin.com and our sister publication, Tech for Good. There are so many great stories and interviews on both of those sites. And I'd like to say thank you to my panel. James, thank you. Thank you very much. And Rom. Thank you. And thanks to you for sticking with us, listener. We'll catch up next time. Bye-bye. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.